You guys are going to love this or hate this today, so we'll see how this goes. Why don't you stand with me, read God's Word. It's Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7. And it says this, Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that the Lord favors what you do. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would help us to be a people who knows what it means to be involved in redeeming culture and redeeming the things that man has so messed up and that you created as good. Help us to be a people who live in such a way that you are known more by our lives. Amen. Have a seat. If you're new, we are going through the Gospel of John. Uh, This is chapter 2. We've been in it for four weeks. (laughs) See how this is going to go. We're back in this week. Last week we took a break. And as we do, we're going to hit a subject that's a little controversial depending on where you're at and what kind of Christian religious mindset you come from because we're going to talk about drinking and wine. And my job today is to frustrate you and send you home. Yeah. This is my, my favorite subjects, drinking and wine. If this was Sesame Street, we would have a little sign, and it says the word of the day is tension. Okay, The word of the day is, is going to be about tension, because the Christian life is typically about living in tension. It's what makes us strong. If we assume that at some point we come and we have every single answer all figured out, it's usually when we go wrong. Alcohol is a very volatile issue in our culture and especially in a church context. And it causes lots of fights between churches depending on what you do with it. I personally have run the gamut in my thoughts about it. My grandfather on my mom's side was an alcoholic. I have heard more than a few stories about alcohol has destroyed people's lives. But I will submit to you that it is not the alcohol. It is the decisions that we make with the alcohol that destroy lives. Okay? Uh, like most kids, I, I partied in high school. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 17. I get indoctrinated in the Christian culture, not necessarily the Bible, just Christian culture. And I believe that all drinking was a sin, all drinking is wrong. I even taught messages on how all drinking is wrong and that when the Bible says wine, it means really pure and good grape juice. And then I decided to read my Bible and I repented and today I drink. Okay. Not like, not like, I love you kind of drinking, but, you know, the, the drinking that's occasionally with your friends. I never drink alone. I have never drinking alone. And, and I will say this, though. Uh, light beer is a sin, okay? You need full-bodied ales, okay, as God intended. So I want you to hear, here we go. This is, this is how it's going to go, okay? I'd like to have a couple things before uh, we start, and because I, I don't want you to leave and say, yes, Aaron says we can get drunk in Jesus' name. That's the church I've been looking for. Okay? That's not what we want. Okay, it's not what I'm saying. So I'm going to give you tension, okay? Tension. This is how it goes. Here's our statistics for you. First service, for some reason, I could not say the word statistics, and Sean made fun of me. So here are the statistics. 100,000 U.S. deaths are caused by alcohol consumption each year. Alcohol is the number three cause of preventable mortality in America. 37% of rapes involve alcohol use by the offender. Fetal alcohol syndrome is the number one cause of mental retardation in the Western world. Youth who drink alcohol are 50 times more likely to use cocaine than those who never drink alcohol at all. Among current adult drinkers, more than half say that a blood relative or uh, they had a blood relative who was a problem drinker or an alcoholic. Uh, traffic crashes are the greatest single cause of death for persons ages 6 to 33, and about 45% of these fatalities are alcohol-related. 
Uh, alcohol kills six and a half times more youth than all other illicit drugs combined. Okay? We live in a world that is sick and doesn't know how to do anything good with the good things that God created. We always change it and do something wrong with it. But as Christians, and we as a church called Element, we are about redeeming culture, doing it right. So we're going to look through alcohol through a scriptural lens as not a cultural one today. Everything God has made is good. It's been given to us as a gift. But food can become gluttony. Alcohol can become drunkenness. Sexuality can become lust or pornography. Money can become arrogance and pride. But everything God gives is good. Wine is a gift from God. Scripture tells us this 214 times. Alcohol is used in celebration of God and worship of God. It's also used in marital intimacy. Because for some reason, the more alcohol somebody gets into them, the more clothes decide to come off, apparently. But you can see this in Genesis 14, 18, Exodus 29, 40, Deuteronomy 7, 12, and 13, Ruth 2, 14, 1 Chronicles 12, 40, Ezra 6, 9, Psalm 104, 14, and 15, Song of Songs 5, 1, Song of Songs 7, 8, and 9. But Ephesians 5, 18 says, don't get drunk with wine. So he says, don't lose control. And there's a fine line between gladness and joy and hangover. Okay, the, the line is there. It is tension. It is tension. We are called to live in tension. Ecclesiastes 7.16 says, Don't be over-righteous. Don't be over-wicked. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Life is to be lived in tension. So some people on the guards of alcohol, they'll say, Well, I'm free. I can drink whatever I want, whenever I want, how much ever I want. Well, no, you can't. And others will say, you're never supposed to drink it. Stay away from it all the time. It's always evil. Well, you can't say that either. Christians respond with wisdom, with temperance. C.S. Lewis says, heresy is the truth taken too far. So something that could be good and right is taken so far, it becomes wrong. So is it okay to drink? Yes, it's okay to drink. Can we go too far? Yes, we can go too far. Is it a sin to be a drunkard? Yes. Can we say everyone that has ever drank in the history of the world is sin? No, you can't. God gives bookends. Don't get drunk. Don't judge those who abstain. And do you see the tension? And see how sometimes this can cause division and strife between people, especially of religious faith. Uh, drinking or not drinking, you know, goes goes back and forth. And so the question's for you. Do you drink to hide? Do you drink to, to escape? Has it become your master? Does drinking make you angry? If you do, then you should not drink. But on the other hand, does freedom scare you? Are you afraid of the freedom that God, that God gives you? And you're afraid so you can't think you can handle it. So you judge other people who do have freedom. You're like, oh, well, you can't drink either because I can't handle my own freedom. Well, that's sin too. Tension, tension. So I'm going to see if I can't tweak anybody today. You're going to love this or hate it, like I said. Here we go. This is a church history alcohol quiz. And I know you're all like, yay, church history alcohol quiz. No, here we go. St. Gall, St. Gall, he is the great evangelist to the Celts. Was he better known for his preaching or his brewing? You know where this is going. His brewing, of course. You're going to reach the Irish people. You've got to go with a pint of something. That's how it works. Charlemagne. He is uh, one of France's greatest kings. Died in 814 AD. After his reign, one group became the exclusive brewer for all beers and ales throughout Europe. Was it the church or the atheists? The church. By God's grace. See? When a young Christian woman in the Middle Ages was to be married... In Europe, they would, the, these men would get together and they would make something called a special ale, the bride's ale. Okay, so where we get our word bridal from, actually. Was it brewed by the men in the church or the men in the pub? It's a trick question. They're the same guys. Okay. Anybody get young, get married last couple years? Anybody? Yeah? See? 
traditionally in the church, the guy should have brewed you something. And it should have been good. That's all I'm saying. John Calvin, uh, I think one of the greatest thinkers in the Christian church, in his pastoral compensation package, he had a guarantee that he would get 250 books a year or 250 gallons of wine a year. Wine. Okay. He didn't drink it all himself. Okay. It's not like that. He, if he did, he'd be having like breakfast wines. And if you have breakfast wines, you're an alcoholic. Okay. That's how that works. Calvin, he threw large parties and invited people over, and wine was part of that. Uh, Martin Luther, another great church reformer, he had a great wife named Catherine. According to his own writings, did he love her dearly because she memorized every book of the Bible or because she was a classically trained certified brewer? B! Proverbs 31, godly woman. Right there. Loves God, brews, she's good to go. Okay, last one. Did we get this one up there yet? Is it still in there? Yeah, okay. Here's the last one. Uh, when the Puritans landed on the shores, okay, the first permanent structure they erected was A, a church, or B, a brewery? See, they're like, church, brewery. Church, what are, we're going brewery. Okay, that's what they did. They, they, go, they go brewery. It's like that. Scripture actually teaches that if you have an absence of alcohol, it can, not always, but it can reflect an absence of joy. So there are three positions on alcohol. The first one is the prohibitionist, the second one is abstentionist, and the third one is called moderationist. We're going to hit all three of these, okay? Turn your Bible to Psalm 104. You're like, oh, we're going to look at the Bible today? Yes, we're going to look at the Bible today. Psalm 104. Prohibitionist position, it wrongly teaches that all drinking is a sin and all alcohol is wicked and wrong. Hey, there's a far extreme in the prohibitionist position that is actually said that if Jesus had consumed alcohol, he would have ceased to be God. Well, it's a stupid position because we know he did, and it can't be backed up biblically. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says this. He makes grass to grow for the cattle and, plant, and plants for man to cultivate, bringing food, forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. So who makes the wine? God. God. Why? To gladden the heart of man. Today, and when we get to John chapter 2, Jesus actually makes wine. Jesus drank. You know, in Matthew eleven nineteen, you see this. Did Jesus get drunk? No, he didn't. And if anyone thinks alcohol in and of itself is a sin, then you're disagreeing with God. And when you're more holy than God, you got issues. Okay. Second position is the abstentionist position. They say, well, it's not a sin, but it is abuse. So we should stay away from it altogether because it's been so abused. It sounds good, but I'm going to shoot that one in the head too. Okay. In Hosea 2.8, God is speaking to Israel and God says this. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. They took these things that God gave them and worshipped a false god with them. God gave them wine and food and money, and they worshipped a false god with it. Did God abstain from giving them the gift even though they abused it? No, they didn't. It's like this. Has God given you something you've abused? Has God given you a tongue? And yet you say some things sometimes, and you gossip or talk about people, and you shouldn't do that. Do you have hands? Have you touched things you shouldn't have touched with your hands? Do you have a mind? Have you thought things maybe you shouldn't have thought? Do you have a tongue? Uh, t- uh, sorry, God, do you have a mouth? Have you eaten things you shouldn't have eaten? Have you done that? Do you have money? Have you spent money on things you maybe shouldn't have spent money on? You're like, oh, I wish I could take it back, but my cooling off period's over and I just can't. Okay? Abstentionists, what they say is this. Someone can abuse it so we could get rid of it. Seriously, is there anything on planet Earth that somebody has not abused? No. Even the Bible, people abuse it all the time. Do we get rid of the Bible? No. Thank you. Holy cow. 
Martin Luther, he, he writes this. He says, do you suppose that abusers, abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? And we say, dear God, no. <laughs> okay? The, this position abstains everything. Some churches start like this, and it's kind of bizarre. They, they think, oh, we've got to do this because it's the right thing and the right thing, and, and they just kind of abstain everything. Next thing you know, you're in a suit and tie. Your wife's got a doily on her head. The drum kits get set on fire. You're reading the King James Version. You're praying that all the left-behind books are true because you want Jesus to come back to get you out of here because you have too many rules and you can't do anything. You know? If you keep going like this, eventually you crucify Jesus. Because that's what they did. He broke the stupid human rules, and they hated him for it. But he kept the commands of God. And some people are like, well, you know, some people speed, so I won't drive. You know, some people gossip, so I won't talk. Some people are in debt, so I won't spend money. It's stupid. It's all stupid. Am I trying to push you on this? Yes, I am. Because that element, we are about redemption. The way that God originally intended for things to be. And so we do that the best that we can, reclaiming what God intended. Third view is the moderationist view. This is doing it right. Scripture gives liberty to participate in alcohol consumption, but it is clear to never abuse it. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, don't get drunk. You can't be any more clear than that. So we are also to respect our governing authorities in this, meaning if you're under 21, you don't drink. If, you, you know, if you're out drinking, you don't drive. You put your keys in the thing because you're happy and glad, and someone else, you don't drink and drive. Okay? And you, we are to allow different positions and opinions on those issues. Romans 14 tells us that. Some of you should not drink. You should not drink. There are two types of sins. Now, it's been a long time before we actually get to John, sorry. Uh, two types of sins. The first one is universal. That means for everyone, for everyone. Don't kill, don't murder, don't steal, don't watch certain reality TV shows that happen on islands and people get bloated off. <laughs> Always wrong. Okay. Second one are personal issues. This is a matter of conscience. It's not necessarily right or wrong for everybody, but God tells you it's right or wrong for you. Some people, like I said, should not drink. And if you do, God's like, whoa, you should stop. And so you're like, okay, and you stop. Some people, it's okay. It's freedom. A Christian who is free should not cause someone who struggles to sin. So if you have an alcoholic, you don't grab your beer and walk up and go, here, have a beer. And they're like, ah. Okay, you just you don't do that. Those who abstain should not look on those who drink with contempt and say, well, I don't drink, therefore I'm righteous and holy, and, and you're not. Or other people who do drink should not look at somebody else who doesn't drink and say, well, I'm more mature and I'm self-controlled and I can handle it. Both attitudes are backwards. The question should come down to this. Do we participate in the world in a way that glorifies God? That's the question. That's the question. Because in the end, in the, end the kingdom of God will hold new and good wine. Good wine. So we go today, almost there. You've got to understand two things. Okay, two things. First one is this. God has a sense of humor. God is funny. You see this in Psalm 37, 13, uh, Psalm 59, 8. God laughs at his enemies. This is not like knock-knock jokes. This is like witty, insightful, sarcastic humor. It is clever. That's God humor. And if you don't get this, that God has a sense of humor, you won't get half the scriptures. God goes to a guy named Abraham. Abraham's 65, 75 years old, and he says, you're going to have a kid. He hasn't had a kid yet. His wife's barren. He's like, oh, whatever. At one point, God says it again. They kind of laugh at God, and God goes, oh, okay. So he has the kid when he's 100 years old. And God's like, ha, ha. change your diaper and his. You know? He's, he's got a sense of humor. And what does God tell him to name the kid? Laughter. His name's Isaac. 
he goes, a prophet named Ezekiel. Okay? And he says, Ezekiel, this is what I want you to do. I want you to poop on the ground and cook your dinner over it. It's like, what? what? And I want you to tie yourself up and lay on one side and then lay on the other side for days. And I want you to build a, a model of the city, jump up and down on it and scream like an idiot. And they're like, why? Commentators right, are like, what's the symbolism? I think sometimes God's going, let's see if he does it. <laughs> his guy's name, his name's Gideon. And there's like this evil group coming in, taking over Israel. And so God wants Gideon to lead his army. And so Gideon like runs away, pees his pants. He's hiding in the hole. He's like, ah! and God shows up and he's like, hey, mighty warrior. <laughs> and Gideon's like, yeah, where is that guy? I could use that guy. Where is he? You know? God is funny. He has a great sense of humor. Jesus comes, very ironic. You know, he comes to a, a teenage virgin in a, in a hick town. His, his cousin's a freaky nut job. It's, that's how he comes. And the second thing you have to understand is God is the life of the party. God, you, you, if you can have fun and, and not sin, then you will never understand God. God throws the first party. God's going to throw the last one as well. And this is what I think is really amazing in this, is that very beginning, God, when he makes man and woman, he gets them together, they have a wedding, he throws a party. I believe at the, at the consummation of all things, God again is going to throw a party with his bride, and, him, and we're together in this, and it's a wedding feast. And what happens here is Jesus starts his public ministry at a wedding. I think it's amazing. Go to John chapter 2. This is where we're going. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus at this point may have maybe five disciples. Why do you think Jesus is invited to the wedding? Have you me a quiz this morning? I shouldn't have come. So, okay, some commentators say this. They, they believe that, you know, will you invite prominent people to your wedding? It makes you more prestigious in your community. Your public image goes up. And like, oh, that sounds good, except for the point that was Jesus prominent? Not at this point. I mean, he's been on the rabbi circuit for maybe three to 50 days. He got five disciples that he stole from his cousin John. You know, what's it's funny. See, he's funny. I think they invited Jesus because Jesus was great to be around. I think they enjoyed being around him. And later you get these large crowds that follow Jesus for the teaching and the miracles. But I think there are some people in those crowds where they're just because they love being around Jesus, because he's likable. We will be with Jesus for eternity. And I bet we'll like him. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us. There's not something wrong with him. I think it was like, hey, you know, Jesus and his guys, they're great. We should invite them to the party. Okay? Verse 3. When the wine ran out, see, that's like, you just pause, like, uh-oh. Okay, that's bad news right there. You go to a party, all the beverages run out. That's bad. It is bad news. The context for this is a wedding celebration, and it could last for up to a week in this culture. Now, your job as a host, you were to feed, house, clothe, take care of everybody who came to your party. They were to come in the door, and you'd sometimes even give them certain things to wear to identify that they're at the party. I mean, can you imagine? I would starve myself for a week. Before I, I'd bust your wallet if you invited me to one of these. I'd be like, oh, I'm not, I'd show up in my plastic pants because I'm going to use the whole, I'm going to get my own zip code when I'm done, you know, because I'm going to, yes, I'm going to take it all and eat it. And you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, what do we do? You are not supposed to throw a party in this context unless you could take care of it. But fortunately for them, God's there. So it works like this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I don't know why Jesus' mom is in charge, okay? 
<laughs> it's like, they have no wine. I'm like, okay, you know, what do you want me to do? Uh, some people think that she's a friend of the family. If she was invited, the, the women's quarters were right next to the kitchen, so it would have been right there. She may not have even been asking Jesus to do a miracle. She may have simply looked at Jesus and said, you and your disciples need to make a beer run. That's in our vernacular. That could have been what she said. You need to get some wine. Go take care of this. We don't want these kids to look bad. Get some money out of your wallet and go get some. Help these kids. I think it's funny because God, he is 30 years old, and his mom's telling him what to do. You know how sad this is, right? You own a house, and your mom goes, you need to really clean your house, your room. And you're like, I own my own house. And she just goes, and you go, okay. And you all go clean my house, and, and you do that. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, it sounds harsh. I actually like the word woman. I, like I, when people like, woman, knock it off. But it's, it doesn't work so good in our culture. That well, it's not these, the word "woman" is the same word that Jesus uses while he's on the cross, looking at his mom as he's dying. He says it's a term of endearment and love. It's like he's like, "Mom, I'm 30, not in front of my guys." <laughs> you know, incarnate Word of God, bossed around by his mom. It's great. I'm, I'm thinking, Jesus, you made her. You should tell her to stop that. You know, just work. He says, "My hour has not yet come." Mom, it's been thousands of years. I'm waiting for the right time to to show myself on the scene, and it's just do it, Jesus. It's like. Whatever. Verse 5. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. And I think this is great because most of the pictures you see of Mary, she's like in a blue robe and her hands, she's got a halo. This is, you get a beautiful picture of Mary right here. She's just a Jewish mom in charge, thinks everybody listens to her. She just goes, do what he tells you, and she walks out of the room. Like, ah, Mary. You know, it's it's great. She's like, a couple hundred years, you guys will really like me. Verse, you know. verse 6. Now, verse 6. Now there are six stone... Boy, you guys are great. Now there are six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, again, this is going to become really funny in just a minute. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. That's like a head waiter. So they went. So this is how Jesus starts his public ministry. It's like he pulls over the sparklets truck, starts pulling these gallons of bottles off the thing, goes, here, hand these out, and he's just handing out wine. That's how he does it. In this culture, you would wash your hands before meals, during meals, after meals. You would wash your feet with these uh, things that he's filling with water to make wine out of. They are for religious stuff. They're for the serious things. Jesus empties the religious containers and fills them with 180 gallons of wine. I think it tells us something. It tells us that joy and feasting in a proper attitude are serious, worshipful business to God. I think laughter is serious, worshipful business to God. Is One of the reasons the Pharisees hated Jesus is that people liked him. They couldn't understand it. He was invited to parties. Again, Matthew eleven nineteen. They accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. It's like when they go to a party, Jesus is there. He's got a, he's got a bucket of hot wings and, and a glass of wine. And he's smiling. And he's talking to people. And people like him. He's, you know, he, he talks with the, with the smokers, with the mullets. And he, and he laughs with the... And he la- Boy, and he laughs with the prostitutes. And the religious people have a problem usually with Jesus, with God, because he enjoys and loves people. They always clean God up a bit. Well, God would have come in a three-piece suit and spoke out of the King James Version of the Bible. No, that's not how he comes. Did Jesus ever get drunk? No. Was he a glutton? No, he wasn't. But the Pharisees, they come, and they start off like most fundamentalists do. 
They say, no one loves God. No one takes him seriously. No one follows God. We've got to get back to the basics. I say, Amen. That's a good thing. Let's get back to the basics. Then they started making rules about rules about rules, and they forgot that God gives his law to overcome sin through grace so we have freedom to live the life that he calls us to. And their rules got in the way of the freedom to live the life as God intended. Jesus' first ministry is making wine. Could I get away with that? Element starts, and I'm out in the back making liquor. I'd get fired. You guys would be like, we don't want that guy. Well, maybe we do want that guy, but we don't want him here. We want him somewhere else. And Jesus just doesn't make wine. Jesus makes really good wine. I mean, the best wine. Not something named after a bird or comes in a box. He makes good wine. A few years ago, there's a story out of Napa Valley. This guy paid $500,000 for a bottle of wine. $500,000. You're not going to be a drunk on $500,000 a bottle. Okay? That's, that's all I'm saying. First night. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, Jesus does the miracle in secret. He doesn't do it out in front of everybody. Like, da-da. He just does it very quietly, not a big show. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, what's going on here? Most people bring out all the good stuff in the beginning, so everybody's drinking it. By day four, you know, you, people can't walk, they can't spell, they can't speak English very well. Then you bring out the garbage, and you're like, here, because it all tastes the same at that point, because you, you really can't tell. He says, but you have kept the good wine till now. Jesus didn't just do things halfway. He made good wine. He did it right. Jesus starts his ministry in such a way that would preclude him from being a pastor in many of, many, many of today's mainline denominations. And I think that's pretty funny. I really do. I mean, I've been to a wedding where a pastor has exerted so much influence. This is kind of funny. A couple was asking me about one of their weddings that they were getting ready to do. And they go, well, should we have, we have beer and wine in our wedding? And I go, of course. <laughs> you know, just, I'm the wrong guy to ask that question to. But I've been at a wedding where a pastor had exerted such influence that a couple couldn't even toast with champagne. And it was, it was really kind of sad. And I worry about legalistic people because legalism does not equal salvation. It does not. I mean, there's going to be sober people in hell. And you don't want to be sober in hell. <laughs> some, some people look at this and they will say, well, you know, that, that means grape juice. You know, perfect wine. Perfect wine is grape juice. And these are the same people who say, interpret the Bible literally on everything. You know, when, when the Bible says wine, what does it, does it mean wine? What does it mean? Pony? You know, it, it, means, it means wine. Number 6-3 actually talks about grape juice. Hebrew words for grape juice. There are Greek words for grape juice. This is not grape juice. Okay, this is wine. In Isaiah, it speaks again about the great homecoming where God brings his people and he serves us choice meat. All you vegetarians. And choice wine. See, God's like on the Atkins diet or something. I don't know. It's, he's, wine and meat and, and it's good. There, and there's a low view of scripture and twisting of the word of God to claim anything different. That is simply how it is. Everything God made is good. It depends on how we use it. People like to argue with me a lot. If you want to argue with me after we're done, fine, whatever. You can go at me. It'll be great. But after a message like this, I usually get one question. People say, well, what about smoking? What about smoking? Personally, I don't like it. My, my eyes turn red. and I mean, I don't smoke. The people around me, you know. My eyes turn red. My clothes stink. I don't like it. But is there chapter and verse in Scripture about it? No, there's not. Some people say, well, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's true, but people who say that usually don't want to talk about how they eat. They just want to talk about drinking or smoking. So I say, how do you eat? You've got to be consistent. And then they leave mad because they think, well, the pastor said I'm fat and I don't drink enough. 
Alaska, whatever. You've got to go with it. What I'm saying is that there are questions about our lives that need to be answered. And, and here they are. First question is this. Does it glorify God? Some people think that, that glorifying God is simply like us down on our knees and we're going, oh, Jesus. And, okay, sometimes that glorifies God. But glorifying God is also you hanging out with your friends, fellowshipping with them, having choice food and good drink and in a right way, okay? Not like all frat party, here's your cup for five bucks, the keg's in the back. But a good part where you're together and you're enjoying life and that, that is a way to worship God together. First question, does it glorify God? Does it glorify? The second question is this, uh, does it master you? If you drink and you can't handle it and it masters you, then you should stop drinking because you can't handle it. And the number three one is, is it good for you? Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. I mean, you, you can ask that about anything. Food, sleep, work, vitamins, how you drive. Yet you've got to be consistent. Personally, I wouldn't encourage anybody to smoke. But can I quote chapter and verse? No, you can't. This is the beautiful thing. Jesus comes into this wedding. And the purpose behind the story is to show a multitude of things. Love and service to a young couple. Proper worshiping of who God is. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And how it is connected to the beginning of all things. And the end of all things all put together, and how Jesus is the culmination of the redemption of mankind and everything that goes along with it. In verse 11, you read this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, why, after this whole thing, why is that written there? I'll tell you why. The first three major miracles in the book of John are directly related to the three gods of Asia Minor in that day. The re- this is the region John wrote his gospel actually to. Dionysus, she was the god who turned water into wine. Asclepius, which I say like a white boy I know, was the god of healing. Then you have Demeter, who was the goddess of bread. So how does John start his gospel? First three major miracles, Jesus turns water into wine. He then heals, and then he feeds thousands of people. And John has an agenda. He wants people to see that Jesus is the real deal. He is God. These other things are not God. Jesus actually does it. Jesus is true. And what he comes for us is about redeeming mankind and redeeming culture because man has messed it up so bad. And I am not saying you should all drink, and I'm not saying you all shouldn't drink. God gave us food to enjoy. God gave us drink to enjoy. God gave us sex to enjoy. But you don't abuse what God has given because that is a disrespect to God. And are there certain things that you should abstain from because you can't handle it? It doesn't have to be drink. It could be anything. Yes, then you should abstain from those things that you cannot handle. But I think legalism promotes atheism. And when you tell people God came to take away their joy and grace, you give them no choice but to hate God. We should enjoy biblically and fully. We enjoy full life in God's presence because that is worship. That is worship. It is why Christ came. It's why Christ offered his life to you and I. That we can become redeemed people who can have redeemed relationships and begin to do things in the world in a redeemed way. I mean, Jesus calls us to something amazing. He makes us new people. I mean, he, he gives us life to us. We become redeemed. And so eventually we can truly worship God. And this is, this is what we do now at this point in our services every week. We come to the place of communion. And you take a cracker and you, and you break the cracker. You dip it in the wine 
or the grape juice. I think it tastes better in wine, personally. And, and you take that and you remember Christ's body, which was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you to redeem us, to put us back in a place where we can have a relationship with God and be able to do things in a right way again. We're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some elders in the back of the room. And if there's something that has mastered you, if there's something that, that has, God has made good and you've turned it bad, pray with them. Call me this week. I'll hang out with you. Tell you you're evil and knock it off. And you know, then I'll, I'll pray for you and stuff like that. We worship God through giving. God gave his life for us. And so we give back to him. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back of the room. The band's going to come right now and we're going to do some songs. And the songs that we sing are about redemption and grace and love. The things that God calls us to do that God is are everything. And then we will also worship God through fellowship. We'll hang out for a little bit. Don't just run out the doors and be like, oh, thank God I'm out of there. I need a drink. No. <laughs> but yeah, don't just, don't just run. meet some people. Get to know other Because part of the redemption that God gave to us is so we could have redeemed relationships with other people. And those relationships are to grow and touch the communities in which we live. And people go, what's different about those guys? They drink, but they're not falling over. You know, they're... Never mind. They do it right. It's different. And we say, yes, it is different because we're redeemed. We live in such a way that God intended, and we enjoy the things that God gave because that's how we're supposed to do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning we would be a people who lived redeemed lives and that whoever that thing is going to is okay. Father, we also ask that you would, you would take us and help us to refocus our lives so that we would be those who can show and bring that redemption to people that are around us. God, I ask that we don't get so caught up that things begin to master us, but that we trust you for the salvation of our souls. God, that we remember that you are our everything. And so we place ourselves in your hands and ask that you would make us who you always intended us to be, a redeemed people with love and grace that live a life that make a difference to the world around us. Amen.